Welcome everyone to episode 31 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? So today, not really getting into small business stuff on this one. Uh, a Doomberg article crossed my uh, crossed my attention a couple days ago, and I think it's important enough that we talk about it. Doomberg put out a free article that you should read called "Your Next." And Doomberg doesn't put out a lot of free articles, so when they put a free one out, it's it's really worth going and checking out. Uh, this one there, they're focused on uh, how Nigel Farage, um, he's a politician in England for, for those who don't keep up on anything foreign, which, fair enough, who cares about England? But this is actually worth paying attention to. He got kicked out of the banking system in England for no real reason. Um, it's been hinted by the banks that basically he he's for lack of a better term, bad person, right? The TLDR is that he has the wrong political views and they locked him out, of, uh, kicked him and his family out of the banking system and, and some of his companies as well. And for what? Well, the Doomberg article goes a little more in, detail, in depth about what it could have been and how um, the British Parliament is really good about, basically the only place you have free speech in England is inside the British parliament where you can say anything straight up lie and you are protected from it. So you can make accusations and against him, his opponents made accusations about him receiving all kinds of money from the Russians and stuff. And it's all blatantly false, all blatant lies, but it's on record. And it could have been the reason he got kicked out of the banking system, or it could just be, it could be a lot of things. Right. But we're seeing a pattern emerge. You know, if you haven't been paying attention, uh, not just to us, but just to the world in the last couple of years, the whole idea of social credit systems and um, the idea that banking is a right is kind of falling apart. We saw it in Canada during the trucker strike, uh, the, the trucker convoy, where they um, did a massive protest uh, across Canada with the truckers. A lot of them got kicked out of their banks, had their bank accounts locked down. Now we're seeing in England, and not to not just the political um, protesters, but to big name people, right? So if they can do it to somebody as big as Nigel Farage, they can do it to you. And that's the point Doomberg's making is you're next. And we've talked about it a couple times in past episodes, but we're going to talk about it again. Like, you've got to be ready for this. You've got to be ready for, um, it, it may happen last in America, um, just because we do have more freedom of speech than anybody else, but you can see it lining up in this country already. Uh, was it last year? I think it was visa tried to, or, or not visa. I think it was chase was trying to stop gun purchases on their credit cards, things of that nature. And it's, it's lining up that, um, your, your banking is going to be controlled. Um, there's attempts to get a central bank digital currency. And I hate to go full conspiracy theorist, but again, this is one that, is looking more and more to be true or potentially could be true if you don't do something about it. So yeah, let's, uh, let me get, let me get a couple thoughts in on that one while I regroup here. Just off the top of my head, are there any conspiracy theories that to you are not just wrong, but, um, damaging for your life? If you, if you kind of treat them as if they're true. Depends. Depends. Uh, think back to Pizzagate, right? Pizzagate, um, there are people who still swear by Pizzagate was real. If you listen to the Martyr Maid podcast, he did a real big breakdown of Epstein. There was like three different parts of Epstein, Epstein Island, the people there. He talks the real conspiracy versus where things went off the rails. 
they never found any conclusive evidence that there was a pizza parlor in DC with children in there and running pedos. But somebody did run into that that uh, pizza uh, restaurant with guns ready to free the children. So to, at a certain point, like the very literal point of where conspiracy could be wrong is when you start acting like a crazy person. You know, when you start busting into restaurants ready to save children, waving guns around, and there's no children there. Like the important thing about Pizzagate wasn't whether or not there was this, you know, pizza was, was code word for pedophile. Like that's looking... I'm really not going to, uh, I'm 99% convinced that one's not correct, but we know Epstein Island was real. We know Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and uh, a lot of other people went through there. We know Bill Barr's father had asso- you know, associations with Epstein. We know um, the Mossad had connections with Epstein. We know like, we know all kinds of key players were there with Epstein. We know that there's pedophiles everywhere. The odds that Bill Clinton and Bill Gates are pedophiles is, you know, 90 plus percent. And if they're not pedophiles, then they were at least banging hookers on the island. Like, definitely something going on there. So it's like, it's directionally correct. Pizzagate was directionally correct about um, pedophiles being all throughout corporate and uh, government. But it was literally wrong in this pizza restaurant was a secret, you know, hub of it. Um, So where it starts to be damaging to you is where you go from preparing for something reasonable to taking potentially violent action. That's not correct. Like that's, that's the obvious extent of it, but there's also the stress end of it. You can, you can drive yourself insane on uh, some of these conspiracy theory type stuff. And it's, it's not quite conspiracy theory. It's, it's kind of the intersection of prepper and um, overactive imagination conspiracies. Right. So um, I have boomer relatives who they, won't take care of their health because they're already in their seventies and they'll, they're convinced they'll be dead in the next couple of years, but they're also obsessively canning every meat and vet, every piece of meat and vegetable they come across because the economy is going to collapse tomorrow. Stock markets are going to go, the banks are all going to shut down and you're not going to be able to get food. So they have to, uh, they're, they're canning a decade's worth of food and still going like there's so much food in their house. They could just stop going to the grocery store now and for the rest of their lives, not have to buy anything. That's how much shit they have. Um, so <laughs> nice of them to a, prep for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is essentially what that means. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. Um, and and the, the worst part is, it's not even prepping in a financially uh, prudent way. It's like the most wasteful financial way you could possibly prep and can. It's unbelievable. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm watching that happen. So you can definitely go neurotic on these conspiracies. It, I like conspiracies as a, as a hobby, right? I like to see the moon conspiracies and the space conspiracies and, you know, see what people come up with. It makes for fun stories. And uh, I may occasionally plagiarize some of these um, conspiracy theories for my own fictional writing under my other anon, you know, they make for some great stories, but you know, you, you have to decide like, okay, if this is true, how does it affect my life? And if it doesn't affect your life, just move on. But if it does affect like, back to what we started with the banking, you know, what do you do? You could drive yourself insane with this buying shit coins and Bitcoin and gold to the end of the days. But as we've discussed in previous episodes, and I think I wrote about it in um, gold, Bitcoin or cash, there's flaws with every one of those as a, you know, doomsday currency, right? 
that could be very well be that the reason you kicked out and walked out of banks is because of your collection of Bitcoin and, and cryptos. It could be your crypto activity that gets you locked out of the bank, which is a uh, great way to keep Bitcoin from getting traction is to start bot, um, you know, kicking people out of the banking system for using it. That's, um, you know, that ultimately could lead to Bitcoin becoming a legit usable currency uh, compared to now where it's still hard and clunky to use, but it could push more people to it in the long run. But in the short term, what do you do if cash is outlawed or if cash transactions are limited to so much to, to a certain amount? What do you do um, if the IRS is going to look at every transaction under 600 over six hundred dollars? You're really you know, there, there starts to be a lot of controls coming into place. And then with a central bank digital currency, it's not when you, when you look at Nigel Farage in Canada, what's happened there? It's not unreasonable to think that the government will stop you from buying gas because you use too much or to stop you from buying meat because you, you, you bought too much this month. Like, it's not unreasonable to think these things. So then the most relevant question is, uh, as these conspiracy theories become true, and maybe not all of them become true, but as they become truer and truer and they uh, become more and more proximate to your life. So for example, what if very soon, you know, the pedophiles and the child traffickers are coming for your children, they're targeting your children, and now you're in a position where you can't even just take defensive measures, you have to take offensive measures, right? Uh, and now you're acting on a quote-unquote conspiracy theory in a very aggressive way, and you have to to protect your children. How far away is that, and what do you do about it? I can't say how far away it is. In one regard, all right, let me contradict myself here, say something that's, that's doublespeak. It's further away than, than you think, but it's also closer than you think. Um, how, can it, how can it be both? Well... In some ways, like we've we've seen the you've seen the memes that say it's not happening. Okay, it's barely happening. It's happening, but it's not a big deal. And it's happening, and it's a good thing, right? So they say it about censorship. They say it about uh, you know it comes around all the time with um, the the political memes. Well, the next one's going to be with the release of that new movie that just came out, Sound of Freedom. I haven't been to see it yet. I really want to, but the nearest movie theater is two hours from me, so it's going to be a little bit before I get out to see it. Uh, it the whole thing is about a true story on child trafficking, and the, pe it, the pedos are revealing themselves instantly with this, calling it a QAnon favorite movie and all this stuff. It's um, very telling who the pedos are. So what we're going to see now is this same cycle of meme play play out where the media is going to say, there is no child trafficking, you guys are full of shit. Then it's going to be, well, there's child trafficking, but it's not as bad as you think. Then it's going to be the, well, it's happening, but it's a good thing. Well, somebody put it in perspective for me. I think it was Matthew J. Peterson. Um, I got to double check the Twitter handle. Um, child trafficking is, in, is already happening in California for the trans movement, right? It's government sanctioned trafficking. And what, what they mean, what he means by trafficking is they pass a thing in California law now that says if your 10 year old goes to the teacher and says, I'm a girl, but I want to be a boy and I want to take the hormones. My parents won't let me. They can take the kid from the parents and say, hey, you know, the parents, that's child abuse. The state's going to take them now and go trans your kid. That's child trafficking. They stole the kid from the parents and they, they, they're hiding behind a legal shield to do it. But you're stealing a kid to pump them full of irreversible hormones. You know, that's definitely not moral. Um, how they made it legal, like I don't, I don't know, I don't know how that's going to play out, other than violently in the long run. Either 
The only way it doesn't play out violently is all the men who are capable of violence pick up their kids and leave California permanently. Because otherwise, that ends in violence. No other way around it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing the same theme that I think most people are figuring out that, you know, the government is just the most powerful gang in the country, right? <laughs> they get to do what they want. And is there that much of a difference between if a cartel kidnaps your kids and sells them into slavery or whether the government does it? Still same outcome. It's just that one appears legitimate in the view of or in the eyes of Joe Public, or at least for some some segment of Joe Public. Um, I, I think it's interesting to think about what, in the same way that the Sound of Freedom movie caused pedos to out themselves by their reaction to it, how can we put more signals out there that cause these demonic humans to out themselves in a way that's completely unfathomable and just wakes everybody up? Let them talk. Um, so part of the reason... I don't like the idea of this, you know, return to, um, you know, return to the fifties mindset, return to the, um, everybody's got their own, uh, phrasing for it, but traditional values, whatever they want to call it. There were pedophiles in the fifties. There were rapists in the fifties. There were, um, drug addicts and whorehouses and adultery. All the, all of that existed in the fifties, but they didn't talk about it because it wasn't decent. It was swept under the rug, right? If your son came out as gay, you sent him off to the church. Uh, that may have not been in the 50s, that, uh, and I don't know the percentage of that happened, but it did happen where you'd send your gay son to go, go off to be a priest because celibate. And then, of course, you have priests turning around and molesting boys. It's like, well, you can see A plus B equals C. You, you see how this adds up. Now everything's out in the open, right? Uh, the church, for the most part, has cleaned up its pedophile act, not entirely, but it's definitely cleaned it up, and it doesn't hide behind it as much like it did in the 90s. Now it's a running joke. Uh, you know, you ask somebody who has bad manners, were you, uh, you know, raised in a barn or touched by a priest? Like that, that's a running joke of it. Although now the reality is that a school teacher is twice as likely, if not more to rape your child than a, um, a priest is. And I, I believe the priest number is going to continue to go down because the church is just taking too much of a black eye from that. Once you expose this shit, you can battle it. That's my whole point. So to return to any system where this stuff is allowed to be swept under the rug and hidden cannot be allowed. The pedophiles are out in the open. Now, what I would do is something I cannot say on this podcast because it would be considered evidence. It would be called Exhibit A. But we're getting close to that, where um, the wrong kid, the wrong pedophile is going to attack the wrong kid, and the right dad is going to respond and say, don't care, consequences be damned. And he's going to be willing to go to jail. That's going to be the turning point. That's coming soon because we're in a two-tier justice system now where, um, you know, pedophiles have more rights than the parents, where these trans teachers have more rights. So it's going to be to a breaking point soon. Now, I wish there was a better way. I don't know of a better way, but keeping these people in the open, keeping them talking about it. Don't engage them in an argument, right? If they come out and say, oh, Sound of Freedom is a, a QAnon movie, all you have to do is go, pedo, noted nothing else. You don't have to argue with them and say, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory. You want that guy talking. You want to see who agrees with him. Now you're building up your list of potential pedophiles. Yeah. Uh, great points about, you know, how to, how to use as an opportunity to identify, you know, the good and bad guys. Do you think there are other things we can be doing to put, put these situations out there where they can't help but out themselves? Like what other, what other options are there? I don't know what else new we could be doing, but Go watch Sound of Freedom, right? They, they made this movie. Go watch it. Buy the DVD when it comes out. Make your friends see it. Tell your, you know, pump it up, right? And this is just one example. 
but start that, that's an easy place to start because it brings eyes on it i mean this is taken the movie taken the liam neeson movie but real life this is like taken could have easily been based on this scenario you know and for as good of a movie as it was it didn't bring enough attention to the fact that people you know that, that this sex trafficking was going on because it was still a fictional movie sound of freedom is a based on a real story based on real people real events yeah it's been hollywoodized but beefed up a little but the premise is still correct that way you can get people aware of it you know you can get people aware of the political issue without being political because the movie is entertainment um and then encourage more of that you know um if you have any writing talent write books on it you can write fictional books you can make a fictional character basically just make movies like this but um this would be a good thing for somebody who has somebody who has a writing talent but not the imagination go talk to the people in homeland security and swat teams and whatnot who are doing things like this are putting books out about it like bring awareness to it um bring awareness to it and then while there's awareness ride it out so that you can the people who are shocked and disgusted but don't know what's going on can be made aware and the people who are pedos or would be pedos will out themselves they're not going to watch that movie and be like oh yeah guys this was great no they're going to they have to comment they have to tell you it's crazy conspiracy theory uh they have to out themselves so let them yeah i mean this is one of the other great things about p2p social media is that uh lots of people can tell their personal stories and it's it's incredibly hard to argue with somebody's personal story you know who are you to tell somebody it's false and somebody's personal story is inherently not political right it's not going through the dc power structures and so uh it's just like a piece of their truth that gets produced and distributed and goes viral into social media. And then, and then the power structures have to react to it. And so they get to reveal themselves as being demonic. Uh, that that's, I think we're going to see that play out many, many times in the future. Yeah. And that's why I don't, obviously I don't have all the solutions. I, you know, I freely admit I don't have solutions to a lot of the problems I point out, but the way forward is definitely not backwards. The way forward is something new. We need to grab what was the, the traditional value, values we had that were lost. We need to cling to them and bring them, bring them back. But we have to do so without sweeping everything under the rug. We can't sweep the degeneracy under the rug like it was in the 50s. We have to put it out front and keep it out front for everybody to see. Um, like it sounds counterintuitive, but you want to give freedom of speech to the pedos and the creeps so that they out themselves. It's the easiest way to find them. Let them come out and show you who they are. Now, the obvious caveat to that is you want them to show you who they are without actually harming children, right? You don't want to harm kids, but you you want them to have an avenue. Right now, they feel so safe that they actually call themselves minor attractive people and are attaching themselves to the alphabet bandwagon, right? Right after trans comes uh, pedophiles now, and you know they call themselves maps. But that's how confident they are. Now, it's good in the sense that they're self-identifying there's no question as to who they are so we can identify them and um, isolate them from children in an ideally legal and non-violent method but failing that we know what's going to happen not saying you should i'm just saying we know what's going to happen if legal non-violent means don't work yeah I, i think it's interesting that of all the of all the tells and of all the data points that we're undeniably evil about modern society. Uh, it's <laughs> it's finally hit something that is undeniable in most people's eyes, and that's harming children. 
But it's not even the first time this topic came up, right? Abortion has been around or was around for 50 years, right, legally. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more evil than abortion or harming children in, in the same respect. Uh, and so it's just interesting to me that they've had so many cracks at this and they've, they've done so many evil things and we finally found the thing that they cannot defend to ordinary people, that they cannot gaslight or psyop people into thinking is okay. There seems to be a real palpable, undeniable revulsion and disgust amongst population that this is actually a defensible spot now that we can say, hey, this is a demonic culture. It's destroying children and there's no denying it. Just interesting to me that one, um, you know, we finally found it, but two, they've been doing this for a long, long time. And yet we somehow convinced ourselves that it's okay to, to, to harm children. Uh, anyway, I, I th I'm still thinking about what you mentioned before that the degeneracy existed before it was just swept under the rug. And I know you've got some interesting stories about family experiences with marriage and, and all the variations thereof. Uh, just curious if you had any thoughts about that or, um, you know, if, if these things existed in the past, how did people navigate, you know, kind of the degeneracy? All right. Let me put a pin in that real quick, because uh, I, I just want to comment on when you, you said now people are taking action versus something like abortion. Here's the reason why. And I haven't heard anybody really say this, and I may not articulate it perfectly, but it's, it's something to the effect of children are real. A fetus isn't real yet. Okay. So for all the people that are pro-life, anti-abortion, they really can't wrap their head around that um, a fetus and to some degree, even babies are real people, right? Because people still circumcise uh, their sons. And when you ask why, like there's no medical reason to do so. Um, there's, there's religious practice and then it's just because we've always done it. And there's some BS reasons about cleanliness that don't really apply nowadays, but um, toddlers and more specifically children children who speak, children who run around, they have personalities, they're individuals, right? They're real. We can conceptualize them. Fetuses and babies are soon to be children. Now, you and I can sit here and say all day that a fetus is a baby, it's an independent life, it's all that, but you don't know anything about it yet. It hasn't been born, it doesn't have a personality, it doesn't speak, it doesn't do anything yet. So it's a, a theoretical child. And that's how people treat it. They can't conceptualize the potential child that's coming. So it's a lot easier for them to get behind things like abortion. And there's a lot of other reasons, of course, that, that people like abortion. It's a way out of responsibility. The, the, the number one thing, it's not about women's rights or whatnot, but so as a woman doesn't have to be responsible for her reproductive actions and a man can pressure a woman into it so he doesn't have to play pay child support. That is the, the front and foremost reason for abortion, avoiding responsibility. But people can get behind it because you know, you have miscarriages from natural, natural reasons, you know, it's like one out of four, even to this day, one out of four pregnancies ends in miscarriage, one out of four, one out of five, um, one of those two, but that's, you know, uh, if you, if you talk to any woman in her forties who has at least three kids, she probably had a miscarriage somewhere in between all those kids. It, it's so common. And I know many, uh, Gen X and boomer women who had miscarriages. Um, almost all of them with three kids minimal. Um, and they don't, you don't hold a funeral for a miscarriage. You don't take that, that what's the remains of the fetus and have a funeral for it. You don't name it. You don't do anything yet because 
he wasn't born. So people have a very hard time conceptualizing that that they're real, that they're real people. And even how they treat toddlers with uh, or babies with baby formula that's that's filled with sugar. And you see uh, some parents letting baby, you know, little baby, six months old, holding a bottle with, with soda inside of it, right? Like they're so borderline and sometimes realistically abusive to babies that people really just don't see them as a baby as a person. It's it's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. Really look at how people treat their children and treat other people's children and how we treat it as a society and the things we let them eat and, and the medical practices. They're not real until they're at least a speaking, running around toddler. That's And that's the why people get real upset over the pedophile stuff because now you have a, an individual that's being hurt, not a potential individual, not a potential person. Anyway, did that all make sense or did I just ramble? Yeah, that all made, that's, it's really good sense. And I think right on the money, um, I, I definitely recognize all those points. Uh, I think uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it's also interesting how uh, this regime has justified murdering so many legitimate humans, right? They just had the wrong clothes on, they lived in the wrong location, uh, they were on the wrong side of profits of some war machine. Uh, and so it's just fascinating to me all the ways that people can justify, morally justify doing whatever they want as evil as it is, uh, because it, it directly benefits them in some way. Uh, but it's evil is evil. And as, uh, as Clarence Thomas says, in, uh, even in a hurricane, north is still north. So I, I think it's just inspiring to me to see that we finally found a, um, an immovable post, some kind of north star from which to judge uh, true evil. And now people are starting to get clarity about all the other things that are evil. Yeah, and I know I keep saying that, but I'll say it again. We've got to keep it out in the open so that we can take action against these people. Legal, nonviolent action, please don't don't make me become Exhibit A. But we need to be able to have these people out front so we can we can deal with them. Sweeping it under the rug is not going to uh, solve anything. Um, anyway, I think we're good on that one. I think, unless you have any last minute comments. No, no, no. Yes. Yeah. So tell me what, what was different about the degeneracy of the past and, and you know, specifically about uh, marriages and whether they worked or didn't work. Uh, that's really interesting to me. Um, so the degeneracy of the past is a kind of a rabbit hole all of its own. Um, but like take, for instance, um, it, it was estimated that up to 20 percent of young men lost their virginity at a whorehouse right, or, or, or a brothel. And of course, the implication there is it was his father who was taking that, taking him, and then his father, of course, would just uh, you know indulge while he was there, right? Um, we don't have statistics on it because nobody's tracking it, but diazepam was called mommy's little helper. There was a lot of medicated women, a lot of um, women who were winos, the original wine moms in the suburbs started in the fifties, um, but it's hard to. to track alcoholism rates when nobody was tracking it, right? So a lot of it's estimates and those estimates could be off, but um, porn houses were, were a thing. Um, God, up until VHS came out, like that was a big deal. And it's hard to, um, you, you got to do some digging to find it because it's mostly been forgotten, but like they would go to certain theaters for pornos and just fucking jerk off. Like it was creepy shit. Um, now, of course, porn is everywhere. Um, that's definitely gotten bad, but it was just not talked about it. It was accepted practice. So um, we kind of shift away from the degeneracy a little bit. Um, I'll kind of parallel it here. 
we talked a couple episodes back about um, like Gaston and the Thotianas and arranged marriages and things along those nature. And I can't believe it, it just went over my head when we were talking about it then. But I've got a lot of examples of my own family and marriage and, um, you know, adultery and whatnot. And when, when I look at all the masculinity hustlers and what they're pushing today, I can look at my own family and tell you why it doesn't work. Right. So going back four generations, my, my great grandfather, um, he was in an arranged marriage. He was a, he was a European immigrant, him and his wife, they had an arranged marriage and he was an adulterer probably till the day he died. Like we went on a trip to Mexico once and we lost him for about an hour. We're pretty sure he was using a prostitute and he was in his 80s. Um, but my great grandmother lived her whole life in service of him, get up, make him breakfast, you know, clean up, make him lunch, clean the house, make him dinner. Her whole life revolved around him. She was basically a servant, you know, give him kids, provide kids, and then feed them. Meantime, he was using prostitutes and, and having affairs and, you know, he was an adulterer his whole life. We got pictures of him in World War II. In his, you know, he was in the Navy. Uh, we got a picture of him on the docks with a bunch of hookers. And we're looking at that. We asked my grandma, you know, Nana, who are these guys? And she goes, or who are these women? She goes, those are the whores in her thick accent. Those are the whores. I'm like, all right, got it. Um, the day my great grandfather died, my great grandmother reversed her aging by probably 10 years. Like, she just looked at least 10, if not 20 years younger the day he died. Just, she was free. She could live out the rest of her life how she wanted to, not serving this guy. Um, the result of that, you come down to my grandfather. Throughout the 70s and 80s, he was a serial adulterer. He had, um, he had my, he was married to my grandmother. He had, you know, my, my dad and all the other kids. Um, and the whole time he was, uh, he had a, a second long-term girlfriend and then other girlfriends in between. So everything, again, this is everything you see the masculinity hustlers today telling you that, you know, it's okay to cheat, high value men should cheat, et cetera, et cetera. Well, fast forward to, you know, I guess 10 years ago, every one of his kids was is divorced and alone. So they're all boomers. You know, my, my dad and my aunts and uncles are all boomers. Every one of them divorced. Um, my grandfather wound up basically dying of guilt. Uh, he, he eventually divorced my grandmother, moved in with his long-term mistress and like died like three years later because he was just felt so guilty. He got to see his own children living, you know, unable to maintain a marriage, unable to maintain relationships. All his daughters are really fucked up. They're all spinsters. Um, you know, my dad and my uncle have, have their own issues, but they're all divorced. So you could see his behavior ruined his kids' lives, you know, um, so when I see these guys um, talking about this behavior, I could just look at my own family and go, well, this is where it goes. This is where it leads. It, it just, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to work out. And the flip side of that is, uh, well, let me, I'll just stop there in case you got any. Uh, no, I mean, the only question that keeps coming to mind is um, how much, uh, how much degeneracy is just sort of unavoidable in the population and uh, as fallen creatures that, and how much do we have to find some way of providing an outlet for that's not damaging to families, that's not damaging uh, to the to society in general? I wish I had a straight answer for you on that one, right? Um, in theory, this is what Christianity does. It 
guide you away from your degeneracy and says, hey, no, you don't get to be an adulterer or, hey, you might be gay, but you're not allowed to be. So you're still going to marry a woman and provide for a family and not not indulge in gay urges. Um, you're not allowed to steal. You, know, you got to lay out the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal. Don't be a bastard. All these things that it's supposed to be a method of discipline and, and rules and punishments so that you don't fall into that. Um, we do a little bit of that in uh, the legal system, right? You're not allowed to murder, you're not allowed to steal. But the idea behind the legal system and government is the more laws you implement to keep people from being degenerate, the worse it gets. And you just look at the Soviet Union and you see what happens. The more laws, the more the government tries to decide what's right and wrong, the worse the situation gets. But the less, if you, the less restrictions you have, the more people behave poorly. We can see that today. People are really destroying themselves um, between narcotics, prescription narcotics, fast food, processed foods, alcohol, porn. The more you give people degenerate things, the more they will choose to use them and uh, ruin their own lives. So the question becomes, do you open it up to the extreme so that the degenerates you know, kill themselves faster, right? And you give them more fentanyl, not less. Or, you know, we don't know where the balance is in the legal system, at least, of, all right, well, if we outlaw porn, it goes underground. Okay, well, then we can put people in jail. Well, how many porn users do you want to put in jail? Um, drugs, you know, we've, how many drug users, this is an ongoing debate between do you put drug users in jail or not? Well, every time you legalize it, the you know, the abuse gets worse. So, you know, but people are allowed. And that kind of the conservative talking point on that is, well, a heroin addict isn't really free, right? They're not really a free person or a slave to the heroin. Like, yeah, maybe. But, you know, basically you give them ultimate freedom, they're going to stick their nose in something or shoot up. Like, so how much freedom do you give people? If you give them too much, they self-destruct. Yeah, I'm, I'm interesting. Uh, I, I kind of have this, maybe this is kind of a pessim pessimistic view on my, on my part, but it just feels like... Uh, <laughs> Is it is it realistic to totally squeeze degeneracy out of the population, or like what is a realistic amount of degeneracy that will still exist and not be dangerous or destructive to the population? And how do we? Um, what is that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it kind of feels like um, if you're familiar, there's this there's this term in nerdy economics called NERU, which is non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and it's basically the the level at which if you try to push unemployment below that level, let's say that level is 6%, you try to push unemployment down to 3%, you're going to create inflation. So you just kind of accept that there's going to be 6% unemployment, even in an optimistic scenario for the economy. Sometimes I wonder if that's kind of like what you mentioned about degeneracy. If you try to snuff out degeneracy too much, it just pops up elsewhere. And it and not only that, but it may magnify and, and um, amplify the degeneracy and to where it's uncontrollable. No. Uh, that's all I had to think about. Yeah. At the surface, I mean, there's certain things you can do. Like we know murder's wrong right now. We, we arrest people for you know, raping children. We get to eat. You know, most of us can agree that that's wrong. The only people disagreeing with that are pedos. But beyond that is where it starts to get worse. Like, you know, is being gay degenerate or not? Now putting aside the overlap between the, and just male gay, uh, we're not talking about lesbians, just male homosexual. There's a big overlap or at least a significant overlap with homosexual and pedophile, right? So if you could isolate that down to non-pedophile homosexuals, okay, well, 
strictly speaking, from a Christian standpoint, it's still degenerate. But from a government standpoint, are they or are they not? If it's just two men in a consensual relationship, non-pedophilic, then who are they hurting, right? And that, that kind of swings to the libertarian and liberal arguments, like, well, nobody's being hurt, okay? Well, now fast forward to today, where now you have gay men getting married, seemingly it's not hurting anybody, now, but now they're doing surrogacy into women, um, basically shopping for babies, right? They're, they're doing uh, in vitro fertilization with women to get, a, get their, own, their own children. So it went from gay marriage to gay marriage adopting kids, which you, you could make an argument, and not a strong one, but you could make an argument in favor of allowing gay men to adopt kids because the kids are already born and to see the child uh, protective service and the orphanages and whatnot, they're all fucked up. So you could say, well, it's a better life to be with them than to be in this this uh, government-run child system. And then, you know, we, we're, we are seeing a lot of gay men who are sexually abusing these adopted kids, though. So again, it's it's not a very good argument. But if you could isolate the pedophiles from that, that's this you know kind of a the strongest argument you could make is that's better than the government system. But now they're skipping the adoption and going right to uh, in vitro fertilization, and they're shopping for kids. So it's not. It, and that, that's going to now you're deliberately bringing kids into a world that's going to be fucked up. So you can see where this starts to fall apart. So now do you go all the way back past gay marriage and just go right to outlawing being gay, like some of the third world countries do? I don't know if that's too extreme or not, uh, but this is you know what happens. We try to keep the, the your, your your church on one side and the legal system on the other, but if you don't integrate them, you know I don't know. That's, it's kind of seeming like you, you, they, you need a little bit more integration of, uh, of your religious beliefs into government, but we also know how that can go sideways. Just... There, there's some people who say things like, you know, the, the United States and its, and its um, pursuit of freedom, that sort of structure only can exist if it's got a, a, a very Christian base in its population, almost maybe, maybe or maybe not, you know, a Christian nation, but at least... A Christian value set in its base, or some other similar type of value set. What do you think of that? It's been pointed out a couple of times now on Twitter that no society running two religions or two ethnicities side by side has had staying power. You know, they've ultimately collapsed. Um, you can see here in America, we're, we're heading towards another race war. There's too much money to be made pumping up racism and creating racism. It's a supply and demand issue, and it's it's uh, the, the, the demand is rising, so they're generating more supply. Um, without, uh, sorry, I forgot where I was going. Sorry, I completely spaced at the end of that sentence. Go ahead and say your question again. Uh, <laughs> um, is, it, is it a requirement in order to have freedom in government, at least as, as we structure government's role in society? Is it a requirement to have a base of Christian values amongst most of the population, either either formally or informally or explicitly or implicitly? So we started off informally, right? Um, you see a lot of religious, you know, Christian language in the framing of the Constitution, but in the end of the day, it was still um, kind of voluntary, right? It wasn't that we were a Christian nation; we were a nation of Christians, a nation, nation made by Christians but allowing non-Christians in. Well, now you fast forward 225 years, or 240 years, whatever the math is, um, 
what we see now that the Christian Christians don't have the same foothold of government that they used to have. The nation doesn't have the Christian ethic that it used to have. And it's with every generation, it gets less and less. So if you go on a voluntary system like that, an informal Christianity, it will eventually deteriorate because you're too tolerant of non-Christians. So you can either be tolerant of all religions or you can have a state religion, but over time it will degrade. Now, in U.S.'s case, it took about 200 years to degrade. Maybe that's, you know, maybe we would just run a two, on a 200-year cycle where we hit the reset button every 200 years. Um, but we're in that reset period now where the only way you're resetting it is through some, some bloodshed. You'd also mentioned to me something to the effect of, uh, Scott Adams mentioned that it was like uh, marriage only works for 20% of people. And I mean, that probably factors in here somewhere, right? What, do you, what did you mean by that? Uh, let's assume that his 20% number is correct, right? Completely unscientific number, but some people, like, you look at today and the incentive structure for marriage, there is none. It's basically just dating with, with uh, legal restrictions attached, legal consequences for divorce. But there's no incentive to stay married. Uh, no fault divorce means you leave at any time. So the amount of people, like, first off, you got to pick a person. You have to be willing or, I'm sorry, you have to be able to get somebody to say yes, right? A certain population, percent of the population can't do that because they're too ugly, too antisocial, or too weird, too medicated. Then you, once you're married, to stay married, you have to be willing to make changes and compromises in yourself, but also to maintain respect for your spouse. If you, male or female, you lose respect for your spouse, it's almost never coming back. And once you don't respect them, you're going to start to resent them. Like, that's guaranteed. So for the, all the incentive right now is to just get out when things get bad. And women, majority of the time, are going to file for that divorce because, um, you know, rewinding back to what I told you about my great-grandmother, they live in fear of being her. They live in fear of being trapped in a marriage. That's why they, they panic when you say that you want to repeal no-fault divorce because they, they have this uh, inherited victim status from their grandmothers and great-grandmothers where they're terrified of living in servitude to a man who is abusive to them and an adulterer and everything else. So they've always got a, a back door set up. So now for your marriage to succeed, you need to find a woman who is really willing to commit to you commit to you so much that she trusts you not to cheat on her and not to abuse her and all that. And who's not going to, you know, just run away at the first sign of trouble. Um, and that's, that's getting harder and harder because it's the incentive is to get out. And you have all these female influencers coming out now saying like, Hey, if your marriage is good, but you're bored, just get divorced. It's fine. You don't have to stay like what? So, you know, when it boils down to it, maybe 20% of the population can actually commit to each other and work through the bad times and be willing to, you know, not take the easy out, whether it be divorce or adultery or um, whatever else. This is a very small percentage of people who are willing to work, work on it all the way through. So do you think that means that going forward, it's just going to be a tiny fraction of the population that actually gets married and stays married? Right now we can see that because, um, you know, the claim that divorce rates are dropping has to be taken into consideration with marriage rates declining. When less people get married, less people get divorced. Um, I don't know the, if it's realistic to repeal no-fault divorce, but that would be the first step, right? Because if you, that way, uh, short of abuse, abandonment, whatever, there's like five reasons 
that you could get divorced in the past, bring those five back, you know, because those are like the, the emergency things. You're getting your physical, physical abuse being the, the top amongst them. But aside from those really bad situations, if you're going to you actually marry somebody, then you need to actually work at it. You have to think about what you're doing and not just get married on an impulse. That'd be the first step. And then, you know, if, if you wanted more people to get married, you have to simultaneously strip away the incentives of being single, meaning all the welfare uh, that goes primarily to, towards women. And then you have to strip, you have to incentivize being married, married instead of penalizing it. Right. So if you're, say you're single making $50,000 a year, that'll put you in whatever, 20% tax bracket. And if you make, you know, in order for you to go up to the next tax bracket from 20 to you know, 22%, you might have to make uh, $110,000. Well, if you get married and your wife is making 50,000, you'll get bumped in the next tax bracket at a hundred, you know, your combined income at a hundred thousand dollars, meaning the tax bracket for being married, the threshold is lower for versus being single. So you get penalized with higher taxes for getting married. If both of you work, which is ridiculous. So instead it should be that getting married puts you in a lower tax bracket. Um, you know, as well as having kids, all the, the tax incentives with kids should be double if you're married. Right. And that's the way it should go to incentivize, you know, the government should incentivize marriage and, you know, financially, but, um, cause that's about the only real way the government can incentivize, but the more incentives you put towards marriage and the more incentives you take away for being single, then that, that's about as far as the government can go. I think, I think that'd be a good thing. Okay. So I, th- I think what's interesting is what was it about your marriage that made it work so well, especially in this current, current environment, right? This current context that we talked about. Well, before I answer that, my marriage should have been over years ago, statistically speaking. Um, my wife and I are not the same religion. We lived together before we got married. Um, my parents were divorced and um, alcohol, alcoholism runs in my family. Uh, we were both in law enforcement, long distance relationship, uh, right at the beginning of our, our dating because of the military. Um, God, there's a couple other things too, but everything I just mentioned is like a greater than 80% divorce rate, you know, 80% chance that you divorce, uh, prenup, we had a prenup. So that's another one. All these things are indicators that you are, you know, that every one of these things, when you do them gives you a greater than 80% chance of divorce. So how do I have all of these things together and still married? Uh, we just, just went over our 10 year anniversary. Um, so why? Well, it's because I knew those stats going into it. And I, instead of just doing the Harry Potter, you know, I'm going to get overcome it by, by the power of being me. I looked at every one of those and said, okay, why, you know, let, let me address them individually. So being divorced, I looked at my parents, I looked at the, what their dating habits. Um, and I picked a woman who was the opposite of my mother and the opposite of the women my dad dates. So I got out of the, um, the cycle that they started and then the living together. Well, the joke with my wife is that she's been married for 10 years. I've been married for 12. And it's because when I proposed to her and she said, yes, we were married. I never called her my fiance from the day I asked her to marry me. And she said, yes, I referred to as her as my wife. So mentally I was married. So when we moved in together, we didn't move in together as fiance. We were married. And that sounds kind of cliche. And I'm sure you'll hear people say on the internet, like it's all just mindset and this and that, but you can call bullshit on that if you want, but from my perspective, we were married. So 
I was living with my wife. I was not living with my fiance. Um, the different religion, we have the same values, if not the same belief structure. That's a whole separate podcast to go down, but um, we'll, we'll address that some other time. But basically, we have the same values, right? Um, we worked in law enforcement. Law enforcement has a very high divorce rate. We dug into why. And without boring you on every one of these, the, the point is, we looked at every one of these things we had going against us, and we addressed it. We didn't hide from it. We didn't just hope, cross our fingers and hope for the best. And we didn't just say, oh, our love is so strong that we'll just get through it. No, we addressed each one and said, all right, what are the 20% who are succeeding here doing different than the other 80%? And because of that, we were able to set up the foundation for a functioning marriage. Now, you know, 12 years later, 10 for her, it's um, we still respect each other. And God, I read this in a fiction book once. It was a quote in there that says, if you ain't got respect, you ain't got nothing. And it, it is so overly simplistic and it's so true. If you don't respect your spouse, your marriage is over. So we don't allow situations where we lose respect for each other. Um, we keep good, open communication constantly. Um, it's actually, so our prenup wasn't just your standard, um, you know, you take what you, you came into the marriage with prenup. It was stipulations in there with things like you we will every as a contract of this marriage every six months you will sit down and address everything that's happened from the last six months to make sure there's no resentment nothing being but you know no smoldering fires everything will be brought out in the deal uh and that eventually just became like a regular thing for us now where to the point of if i if i see my wife in a bad mood i'll ask her what's up and she'll be like ask me later what i can explain and then a couple hours later, she's like, all right, you said this or you did that. It felt like this. And then we worked through it. So in, in the last decade, in the last 12, 13 years total that we've been together, we've never had a screaming match. And it's because we've never let anything fester that long to scream. We talk and work it out. And it's all based on maintaining respect and treating each other. And from there, we're able to still tolerate each other, still like each other, still love each other. And... She also has the personality of, I would rather spend the day hanging out with her than, you know, most of my friends. Now, I still hang out with friends. I do things that she's not interested in doing, you know, fishing, camping, hunting, all the normal guy stuff. But if I got the option right now to take the day off and spend the day with her versus spend the day with anybody else, I'll pick her because I actually want to spend time with her, which I didn't realize was very rare. Wow. Yeah. Lots of great stuff in there. <laughs> uh I think it's interesting that we're seeing this theme emerge all around society is that we are having to, uh, we're having to engineer and manufacture the institutions and social contracts that actually work, that underpin society. Because not only, as you mentioned, not only do we have these terrible examples before us, right, of our prior generations, parents, grandparents, etc. Um, but, uh, and so we, we instinctively know, okay, we can't do what they did, but we're also finding out you almost have to do the opposite of what they did. Uh, and so we're literally having to build and test these structures ourselves that should have been passed down and refined through time and stood the test of time in the sort of Lindy effect, you know, but now we're having to build them, uh, in the same way that you would engineer a ship to go into space, right? We, we have to recognize what it's going to what it's going to take to be successful. And we, uh, and we just have to understand uh, how to do it um, without having the luxury of having things tested through time. 
Um, so it's just interesting to me that, that we're in this point in society where we're having to be so much smarter than, than things that have been passed down through time. It's because in the last 60 years, between the technology, like the last 60 years has had more change and activity than the 600 years prior. You know, it's just been straight up on a technology curve, a degeneracy curve, right? Like who could have thought, you know, internet porn on your phone, you, you'd go from porn theaters in the 19, early 1900s to porn in your pocket, unlimited for free. Like that's, nobody could have known that that was coming or calculated that, you know, we still don't understand the, the ramifications of that. Like we know digital castration is a thing. Men will get addicted to porn and then they can't get a boner. Uh, in real life, like with a real woman, that's a real thing. That's a real problem that's going on now. Um, and that's just one example. Like the internet changed so much, the birth control pills, processed foods, plastics, like the technology curve, you know, you're, you're talking about having these institutions handed down. Imagine a generation of fishermen. You all know, use your boat analogy and space analogy. You have a generation, you know, 10 generations of fishermen where they pass on the boat to the next generation. And you learn the fishing techniques and then, all right, we're going to upgrade from our, our sailing boat to a steam boat, to a diesel boat. Right. And then, then you get to your kid and he's, you're looking at a spaceship and you're like, we just jumped from boat in the water to a literal rocket going into space. Like there's no in between. So how do you, what, what do you tell your kid? It's like, all right, have fun in space. I have literally nothing I can pass on to you. You know, there's so much, there are things that, that our grandparents could have taught us and did teach us, but there's so much change that's happened since their day that there's almost nothing they can give us just because so much has changed. You know, what are they going to tell you? Don't watch porn. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. We know that's bad, but you didn't solve anything. Um, but they have nothing else to tell you. They've never encountered this. You know, they didn't have porn addiction in their day. They didn't have, uh, you know, uh, all the, the, the weird processed food health problems and, you know, all the marshmallow people, like you couldn't be that obese a hundred years ago, even 50 years ago, you couldn't be as obese as people are today. The food just wouldn't have allowed it. So, you know, we just have so many problems that happen so fast. And over the next 10 years, we're going to awaken more problems that we couldn't see coming because the technological curve is going straight up. Um, so yeah, short way of, or a long way of saying, I don't have a good answer for you. So if change is drastically accelerating and continues, as it seems it will be, will we become boomers? So, I mean, on some level, we've been inoculated against boomerism because we saw boomers with our own eyes, lived the consequences of their choices, but the pace of change is so drastic, how can we not end up as boomers? Yeah, very real possibility that everybody just retreats to their own corners and is like, all right, I'm out. You know, I can't keep up with this, so I'm just going to stick to the three things I'm good at. I'm going to sit in my corner, do those, and hope the world doesn't burn me. I don't burn up with the world as it, as it gets set on fire. Like, that's, yeah, very real possibility. And I, I don't mean to answer my own question here, but the, the other thought in my mind is the boomers, they weren't just dinosaurs. They were fundamentally broken and an aberration amongst the generations, uh, and they refused to adapt. Uh, so in other words, they, they, uh, they were the first generation to lack wisdom in my mind, as they got old. So we have this weird situation where right now the, the Gen Xers, millennials, and even Zoomers possess a wisdom that the, that the boomers don't have. Uh, so it's not just that they're outdated and they refuse to change or adapt. It's that they, there is something fundamentally broken with them. So I, I take heart in the idea that maybe that will not happen again, 
Um, but in any case, I just, it's, uh, quite daunting to me to think about how fast things will change and how quickly we'll be outdated. Well, boomers lacked wisdom because for the most part, they didn't need it. Most of them missed the Vietnam war, right? So they missed the big tragedy of the day. Uh, the oldest of boomers did, but for the most part, it was a different, it was the kind of the tail end of the silent generation. Uh, so everybody who's, who missed Vietnam of those boomers, they had no real struggle in their life. Um, Yes, there was inflation in the 70s. Most of them were teenagers when it happened. And teenagers, no teenager can, can tell the difference between an environment with inflation and no, no inflation because teenagers are perpetually broke. It's kind of the definition of teenage. Um, they got through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. There was no huge economic downturns for them. And it was, um, it was just the curse of the suburbs, right? It was so easy. They never had to learn anything. By the time it was time to learn something like the 2008 crash, um, you know, it was they didn't learn anything from it. You talk to boomers and they, they tell you, well, in 2008, I saw my IRA, my 401k, my TSP, I saw a crash by 25%. It's like, okay, what did you do after that to ensure it doesn't happen again? They go, what do you mean? It's like, oh, cool. So you're complaining that you lost something, um, but you, you made no actions to change it because by that point, they were too old to adjust their thinking, right? So they didn't have the struggles of the Great Depression. They didn't have the struggles of the Vietnam veterans who were getting you know, recruited right out of high school. They didn't have the same level of struggle. Now, you can make the argument that millennials and uh, Gen Z don't have the, they definitely don't have the struggles of World War One, Two, Vietnam, but the anxiety they have is as high as you know that, those previous generations. That's, not entirely their fault. For as much as we make fun of them for being soy boys, low testosterone, et cetera, well, how can you expect them not to be an anxiety-ridden disaster when you shield them over to the public schools who continuously tell them that the white man's out to get you, the earth is going to end in 12 years, climate change is coming for you, you feed them garbage foods, which there is a definite correlation between processed foods and emotional regulation and mental well mental health and well-being so you feed them garbage foods you pump them full of non-stop doomerism um so then they hit the adult world the public education does not prepare you in any way whatsoever to be a functioning adult so now they're out in the adult world they don't know how to handle jobs their parents didn't raise them the schools did um you know boomers completely checked out on raising children and just handed them over to the state so yeah these kids don't have the same struggles, but the anxiety is at the same level. So maybe through that, as they, if they can learn to overcome their anxieties without pills and medications and actually become functioning adults, then they'll actually have wisdom to impart onto their children. You know, the, the millennials and gen, well, the gen Z and then the gen alpha after that, who actually become mature enough to have children, I think will have wisdom. They'll, they'll have the same level of wisdom and, and whatnot as the, the, greatest generation had, you know, being brought up in the depression and then going to war. They don't have a physical war to fight, but they do have a, they have their own set of problems. That are, and I think if they overcome it, they'll have the wisdom that the never acquired. Wow. Fa fantastic monologue. I, I really have nothing to add to that. <laughs> well then, uh, let's end it on a high note and we'll, we'll cut it there. Um, thank you everybody for listening, for getting into this point. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Wi-Fi underscore pioneers, or you can find us on Substack. Um, whether you're listening to this on Spotify or another platform, you can go to Substack, Wi-Fi Pioneer Substack, and you can comment directly, 
you can share it. You can uh, just tell us what you think um, or reach out to us on Twitter to do the same. Otherwise, have a good weekend. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.